Welcome to episode 423 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with journalist, writer, historian, I would say, great all-around thinker and communicator, Marguerite Fox. We talk with Ms. Fox about her days at the New York Times, about her new book called The Confidence Men, a true story about creating and sustaining belief, writing obituaries for the likes of the great Maya Angelou and Betty Friedan, as well as the infamous Charles Manson. We discuss her process and the figure in the carpet, among other things. A grand conversation with writer Marguerite Fox on today's episode. We also have an EWSA titled Headset. Our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, shares a new radio play titled The Shut-In, Roland's Story. And we have a poem called Birch Tree. All of this, of course, is imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 423 of Troubadours and Tours. Simply 
Headset. Wayward glances coupled with incontinent stances as gerrymandered details prevail at rigging the pursuit. Her suit men and their obsequious hens pretend that they truly know and care. But those of us more robust, genuine, and honest in our hearts and minds need to be open and aware of what is happening. I walked through the hills of an upper-middle-class neighborhood recently. Laurel covered the wild parts at the sides of the road. Craftspeople and laborers, landscapers and delivery trucks created a subculture in this land of the muckety-mucks. And I wonder where I fit in. How all of this happened, what decisions I made that each of those individuals made, put us where we are, and how far from the core essence of humanity we could be, defined by our wants and our needs. The headset I was wearing pumped beautiful music into my ears, and it stimulated often inspired the trek as a sort of soundtrack, and I felt the air in my lungs through my mouth and nose. The deep green grass and leaves and the bright golden rays of sunshine through the trees as a reprieve from the bellows of trouble and self-imposed discontent the most inspiring event of the day. And the trucks and the cars roll by as I continued ahead or perhaps behind on my feet, wonderfully intertwined, looking up and into the deep blue sky, smells of sweet country air, sublime, seemingly infinite, traveling within undefined moments in time. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton pot of thieves Wild cord of my sleeve Thick heart of stone My sins my own They belong to me Me People say beware Look at the wind to see you swing on the 
It's Margalit Fox. Margalit Fox. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Tours at CW Conundrum Demure. You are very welcome. And how is the sound on your end? I'm working with a brand new headset, so I want to make sure it's doing what it should. That's interesting. So am I working with a brand new headset? <laughs> well, it seems as though my headset wants to play nicely with your headset, which it's... is a good thing. <laughs> it is. It is. Let me, before we get started... Uh, let's uh, share a little background information for the listeners. Margalit Fox is considered one of the foremost explanatory writers and literary stylists in American journalism. She retired in June 2018 from a 24-year career at the New York Times, where she was most recently a senior writer. As member of the newspaper's celebrated obituary news department, Ms. Fox wrote the page one send-offs of some of the best-known cultural figures of our era. Before joining the obituary department in 2004, she spent 10 years as a staff editor at the New York Times Book Review. Marguerite received the Front Page Award from the Newswoman's Club of New York in 2011 for feature writing and in 2015 for beat reporting. In 2016, the Pointer Institute named her one of the six best writers in the Times history. She is the author of several highly acclaimed books, her fourth and most recent, the nonfiction thriller, The Confidence Men, published by Random House, 
tells the true story of the most astonishing POW escape of all time via Ouija board. True Badours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Margalit Fox. Very Thank impressive. You. Very impressive. It's such a nice honor to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So uh, let me start sort of at the beginning. I mean, not not at the very beginning, but with regard to the New York Times, how did you end up there? Well, it's interesting. I firmly maintain that all writers come into the world wired for either long form or short form. And I am a long form book length writer in my bones. But through a series of accidents, I spent a very happy, wonderful 30 years on daily papers here in New York, first as a long-time, full-time freelancer for New York Newsday of blessed memory, and then from 1994 until 2018 at the New York Times. And I have to say that, although it sounds counterintuitive, doing short-form daily deadline newspaper writing under that kind of pressure where you learn to function based on a combination of training and adrenaline turned out to be the single best preparation for a career as a book author that I could have asked for. Yeah, I guess in comparison, being a author long form, as you as you put it, uh, was less less pressure, and you had the, the the pleasure of kind of just sitting back and reflecting and changing things. Exactly right. What I've always thought, I loved my career at the Times, being an obit writer as I was for 14 years is fascinating because you're paid to be a speed biographer of someone, but learning about all of the fascinating people who were my subjects and obits was a little bit like having a sumptuous banquet laid out before you, but then someone snatches it away from you after you've had only two bites. And indeed, being a book writer gives you the luxury of spending a year just reading. When I start a book now, and this, I started work on The Confidence Men the day after I retired in June of 2018, My drill is I spent the first year just reading with a cup of coffee at my elbow in my little study in my apartment in Upper Manhattan, my cat on my lap, and the book, if it's not too heavy, propped up on the cat who makes a very obliging book stand, and I will just read for a year. At the end of that time, I might have six, seven hundred pages of notes, and then I go through them and start to see the patterns emerge, what uh, Henry James so wonderfully calls the figure in the carpet, and then I can start to see what the pieces of the puzzle are that will be this book and how to configure them. It's thrilling. But what I realized with the difficult advent of COVID-19 is what I had been doing all along was sheltering in place. I just never knew it was called that. (laughs) So the the pandemic wasn't a big, uh, different uh, sort of uh, approach for you in terms of how you went day to day with your, your living. My routine changed remarkably little. Had I still been at the Times, it would have changed radically. And my hat is off to my colleagues who, you know, over a thousand people atomized working from 
their homes, not only all over New York, but all over the country and all over the world, are miraculously putting out the New York Times every day. The same for other papers, and of course the same for the wonderful crew at Random House, all of whom, working from home, are putting out books. Yeah, it's amazing. And and let me let me ask you, when you're doing your research, that one year or so of research, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's important that you choose the right things to read, right? Uh, so that you're you're being informed by the the best sources and the most sources. You bet. And of course, that starts with choosing the right project to do a book about from day one. So that, of course, is the most crucial choice that as a writer of not narrative nonfiction, I can make. And, and when you're talking about the obits, uh, it, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, he used to write obits for the local paper, the Scranton Times. So I'm sure he is fascinated. Well, I know he when it's kind of morbid when someone really grand passes. He he's shared with me how excited he is to read the obit. It's not morbid at all, and uh, I I and my colleagues talk about this at length in the wonderful 2017 documentary called Obit by a terrific young New York filmmaker named Vanessa Gould, in which she profiles my colleagues and me as we go about our work in the Times. And what we say, and this is absolute gospel, is although it may sound funny on first hearing, Obits have next to nothing to do with death. Because if you think of a you know, typical, fairly meaty newspaper Obit of, say, a thousand words, there might only be one or two sentences about the basic factual aspects of the death, when, where, the cause, and so on. And the other 99% of the story is about this person's newsworthy and therefore pretty remarkable life. So it is biography. One of my sisters is a poet, and she loves to enter these flash fiction contests where you have to write a whole novel in a hundred words. I think it's nuts, but she likes it. And one day when I was still at the paper, she called me in the newsroom just to say hello. And when I picked up the phone, the first thing she said was, so how's the flash biography business coming? And I thought, damn, it took a poet to make me understand on the deepest level what it is I do. Oh, that's the job of a poet. Exactly. <laughs> and um, when when you're thinking, when you think back on, on some of the old bits you've uh, crafted for the New York Times, uh, any that come to mind that really compelled you and maybe even in some ways uh, challenged you, made you a little nervous? Oh, there are so many. I did well over 1,400. And I should explain, too, that uh, as many of your listeners will know, uh, although probably 90% of our work is writing daily obits on deadline that you know we hear about and write and file, in if we're lucky, in an afternoon, sometimes in just an hour. And so those are handled like any other breaking news stories in the paper, in and out in the course of a single day. And of course, now... On, with mytimes.com up on the website even sooner than the next day. But the other part of our job, sort of the, the part of the iceberg you don't as readily see, are advance obits. And these are obits that are written while our subject is still living, 
because that subject is important enough, has had a complex, long, rich, and distinguished enough career that it's someone we don't want to get caught out writing on deadline when we might just have an hour. Uh, so those we really take time with. And of course, they're written all but obviously the when and the where that gets put in when the time comes. When I left the Times in 2018, I left behind between 70 and 80 of these advanced obits in the can. So I am still continuing to get bylines uh, when they happen, of course, are is in the lap of the gods. But I might get anywhere between half a dozen and a dozen bylines a year where stories appear fully written. I barely remember writing them. They appear under my name as if by magic. And I have the sense that I must have left enough milk out for the elves and they put a whole, a fully reported story in the paper. So I wish I had thought of that method 20 years ago. <laughs> well, we were talking about poets too. I'm pretty sure you wrote my Angela, the great uh, American poets uh, obit. I did indeed. Yeah. What an honor, right? Many of these are a great privilege. Uh, the one that comes to mind in that respect is, of course, the pioneering feminist Betty Friedan, mm -hmm. whose great book, The Feminine Mystique, in the early 60s, really launched the modern women's movement. And I was acutely aware that I, as a much younger woman than she, sitting there putting the finishing touches on a major obituary that was going to be indubitably on the front page of the New York Times the next day, I was so aware that as a woman, I owed my very position at a major newspaper to Betty Friedan quite directly. Wow. Wow. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. And uh, I want to get into your book, too, because I know it's it's coming out. It's, I think it's going into print on June 1, 2021. June 1, this Tuesday. Yeah. So just it's, it's a matter of days now. And uh, you've been working on it since 2018. Correct. Uh, and it's a true story. It's set in World War One. I, I understand. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm going to let you tell us as much as you like. I I've been reading up on it. it. It really seems like a wonderful tale, almost like it is fiction, but it's not. It is an extraordinary tale. As one reviewer said, it's like something out of Ripley's Believe It or Not, but everything about this is nonfiction. I absolutely guarantee it. Now, normally I hate the phrase elevator pitch because it's just so glib, but yeah. For my purposes, it serves as a good introduction. If I were giving a potential editor or a movie producer the elevator pitch of The Confidence Men, it would go something like this. In the depths of World War I, two captured British officers escaped from a remote Turkish POW camp by means of a Ouija board. And that is literally what happened. And they succeeded, too. Now, if I gave that pitch to an editor, she would think I was off my rocker. <laughs> and yet, that's what happened. So when I came across an allusion to this old story in a long out-of-print book a couple of years ago, I thought, how can this be? And so... My job in 
reprising the story was, of course, to bring in all kinds of other sources and all kinds of social, historical, psychological background to answer that question, how could a preposterous scheme, Escape by Ouija board, actually have worked. Right, and and it seems you also explore the tendency, the need for humans to believe in things that seem unbelievable. That's right, and one of the answers to how could this have worked, uh, the scheme was as follows. My two officers, uh, the Welshman, Harry Jones, and the Australian flyer, Cedric Hill, found themselves in this POW camp, 4,000 feet in the mountains, just remote mountains, the Anatolian desert all around. The camp, which was called Yozgad, was considered escape-proof just because the, uh, the geography was so forbidding. Uh, so they knew they couldn't escape, at least not by any conventional means. So this was not one of those, you know, tunneling escapes that you see in movies like The Great Escape or The Wooden Horse. It had to be something else. They both desperately wanted to get out. Around that time, this is now early 1917, Jones gets a postcard from a relative in Britain. Uh, and knowing that he had, as the captives all did, these long, empty, stultifying days in captivity with nothing to do, this relative suggested he try experimenting with a Ouija board. Now, Jones was not a believer in spiritualism, but they were all so desperate for diversion, he and his fellow captives built a Ouija board from scrap and started holding seances in their prison dwelling at night. They couldn't raise a spirit, so little by little, just to entertain himself and his fellows, Jones started faking responses. He had a very good visual memory and very quickly memorized where on the board they had arranged the random letters of the alphabet, and so with his eyes closed, he gently steered their planchette, which was an inverted drinking glass, toward letters, and soon... All of the British captives were happily communing with all these spirits. As, as Jones said, it gave us a taste of the outside world and was the only thing outside of our dreams that gave us a breath of freedom. It brings tears to my eyes every time I read that passage mm -hmm. from his 1919 memoir. And this went on merely as a lark. But over time, by early 19, the, by the spring of 1917, Jones realized that if he played the game right, he could actually use the Ouija board and his sham spiritualism to hook and reel in his Ottoman captors. And he hoped that it would eventually lead him to freedom. And that's what it did. It's amazing. And, and uh, Jones, as well as uh, uh, Hill, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they come from different classes as well. One is the son of a lord. The other one uh, was a mechanic in, in mm -hmm. Australia. Unlikely friendship. And I think you build on that as well during the, the uh, development of the story. Indeed. I couldn't have asked for a better buddy movie setup. Uh, Harry Jones, the main protagonist, was the Oxford-educated son 
of a British lord. Uh, his father, Sir Henry Jones, was one of the world's most eminent moral philosophers. His confederate, Cedric Hill, was an Australian, uh, never went to university, did not consider himself a big fan of book learning, but he was brilliant mechanically and brilliant with his hands. He had been um, a mechanic who repaired the equipment on a big sheep station in Australia. When World War I broke out, he had always been fascinated by airplanes, which were then you know, barely a decade old, the technology of using airplanes in warfare was so new that Australia did not yet have a full military air corps. So Cedric Hill got on a boat, sailed to England, and joined up with the Royal Flying Corps, which was the precursor of the Royal Air Force, became a pilot, and was shipped overseas. He was captured in the Sinai and Palestine theater of the war, and Jones was taken prisoner in the Mesopotamian campaign. And they arrived at Yozgad about two weeks apart in the summer of 1916. Wow. And um, when when you're writing this book or any of, of your other three books, do you, from the get-go, know what you're trying to accomplish besides, I'm sure, telling a good story? Is there a, a, a moral imperative, an ethical imperative that uh, you're trying to achieve as well? Well, for the confidence men, there was an immediate question and a larger question, which I felt obliged to answer both for myself and for readers. And the answers to the two questions are pretty much the same. They turn out to be the same question. The immediate question, as I mentioned, was how could this preposterous scheme have succeeded? George, um, uh, Jones wrote a long 400-page, rather dense memoir about his escapade called The Road to Endor, published in 1919, came out in Britain, not that well-known in this country, and you know, with the passage of a century has been forgotten by most people. As I say, this story slipped into a crevice in history, and I've had the privilege of levering it out again. Um, so that was one question. How could Escape by Ouija Board have happened? And I wanted to revisit the question using all of the insights that we have with 100 years of modern psychology since World War I and social history and so on. That was one. The larger question I wanted to answer was, how does a master manipulator, in this case the con men slash escapees, Jones and Hill, how does a master manipulator create and sustain belief, particularly belief in something that is not true, and correspondingly, why do his converts persist in believing untrue things in the face of all evidence to the contrary? And needless to say, that question and its answer have very deep implications for contemporary life, mm -hmm. particularly particularly on the American social landscape of 1916 to 1920, and even continuing to today, where you have all kinds of specious beliefs, many of them very dangerous out there, um, Beliefs like, for instance, uh, the COVID vaccines rewire your DNA or top Democrats are running a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor. And yet there is a cadre of Americans 
who persist in these beliefs in the face of all evidence. So the questions that I explored for Jones and Hill 100 years ago and their answers are equally valid for uh, contemporary social life today. Well said. Well said. Margalit Fox, journalist, writer. I will also throw in their uh, historian on the program. It's a pleasure talking with you. And as this book starts to get traction, as I'm sure it will, uh, I, I see this becoming a movie. This, as you mentioned, is a perfect story for a movie. Uh, and I, I'm sure you're thinking about where the book is going to go, but you're, maybe you're thinking about the next project as well. Is that the case? Well, yes, and and yes, apropos of the movie, first, uh, as we say, from your mouth to God's ears, and indeed my screen agent is shopping around the screen option even as we speak, uh, and indeed it, it certainly sets up to be a wonderful feature film. The next book, absolutely, uh, since I left the security of a full-time job in 2018, I now, as I think of it, chain smoke my books, and literally... The day after I turn in the manuscript of one, I start researching the proposal for the next book. So I turned in the manuscript for The Confidence Men about a year ago, and since then have obtained a contract, also happily with my wonderful editor, Hilary Redman at Random House, my longtime editor now. And for the next book, it's also narrative nonfiction. And it has to do with crime in 19th century America. Crime in 19th century America. Gangs of New York, maybe. Something on, uh, but a broader perspective. I, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> okay, you could keep it then to yourself. I'll wait. I'm patient. <laughs> Good. It's in your interest to be. <laughs> oh, man, that's perfect for the, for the, uh, the context of what you're, you're going into next. Oh, you're right. You're there. You're, you're there already. Yeah, that's where my head is at. <laughs> and uh, before we, we uh, finish our conversation, I want to make sure we give you an opportunity to let people know how they might uh, find your work. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my website is just my first and last names run together, margalitefox.com, and there are links for information and purchasing for now all four of my books. The Confidence Men is already available for pre-order, and it will be published this coming Tuesday, the 1st of June. And that's M-A-R-G-A-L-I-T-F-O-X. Correct. You have been on the streets. You have been doing research of uh, everyday people and some of our more extraordinary uh, fellow human beings to, to do your work as a, as a journalist. And as a writer of, uh, of books, what have you learned in all these experiences about humanity? Oh, that's a huge question, but it does take me back to something you asked me earlier that I didn't get around to answering, which was, uh, were there people I dealt with as an obit writer who were um, discomforting? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We write about wonderful people, and I've had the chance to write about well-known names who have done heroic things like Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Betty Friedan, Maurice Sendak, uh, wonderful, important figures, but 
since these are not eulogies, but they are full journalistic news obituaries, balanced like any other article in the paper, we also write about some of history's great villains, uh, because for good or ill, for ill in this case, they were newsworthy. And so I wrote about the obit of Sheriff Jim Clark, the great enforcer of segregation in Jim Crow, Alabama, you know, whacking people with his cudgel as they came off the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, you feel terrible. You feel like you want to go home and take a shower afterwards and wash the stain of that person off you. But he was a major player on the world stage for this period. It has to be done journalistically. It has to be done right. Probably the most disturbing obit I've written in that vein was for Charles Manson. Again, horrible. You know, never more have I felt I wanted to wash my subject off me, but it had to be done right. He was nothing if not newsworthy. Yes, and, you know, we're going to learn from all of uh, those uh, experiences we have and all the people that are part of our our uh, history, right? Uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. So you're doing, you're, you did and you, you continue to do good work. I, I say thank you. And uh, I, I look forward to reading The Confidence Men. I, I really enjoyed talking with you today, Margalit. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was great. Take care. You too. Thank you.
The Shut-In, Ronald's Story My mother decamped at Skagway, Alaska a while ago and began a new life with her shaman lover, Ronald. One morning, sipping coffee and pondering the vagaries of fate, I decided to find out more about my mother's paramour, more than my mother offered in her sometimes cryptic calls, letters, and postcards. Now, I'm not the most adept at online searches. I still read the newspaper on paper, delivered by the disagreeable paper boy who spitefully flings my morning dispatch into the bushes of my bitter cousin Mary's yard next door. So it took me a while to piece together Ronald's story. There are many Ronalds out there with his surname, and at first I harvested a crop of Ronalds long ago consigned to dust. There were pilot Ronalds, and accountant Ronalds, and minister Ronalds, and dentist Ronalds, and even a clown Ronald, who, dallying with a circus patron between shows, was discovered by a jealous husband and bludgeoned to death. A multitude of Ronalds, but not my mother's Ronald. Finally, after remembering a comment my mother made in one of her letters, I found him. An article in a small-town newspaper in Minnesota noted the retirement of a beloved shop teacher at a local high school. There was a picture of a youngish, or younger, Ronald. He retired early, besides a lathe machine. A graduate of St. Olaf's, with its famous choir, he started teaching right after college and remained, year after year, student project after student project, mailbox, birdhouse, signage. He had a wife and a son. A happy life, I guess, at least according to the article. I sat at my computer, scrutinizing the picture of the retiring Ronald. What did he do during the summer? I imagine him foraging in the woods outside his small town, looking for certain mushrooms and communing with the wildlife. As his wife puttered in the garden and his son rode his bicycle to the Dairy Queen, Ronald sat in his garage workshop, secretly reading about shamanism and dreaming about Alaska. Did he put on a cassette of Barry White and sink into the beat-up Barkalanger, close his eyes and daydream of his spirit animal? Was he distracted when he and his wife went to backyard barbecues, and did she notice? Were there fights? There must have been fights. Or, perhaps worse, silence. On summer nights, Ronald brooded on the porch swing, with his wife next to him, wondering. So Ronald retired, and after a few months of feeling out, out of sorts and adrift, he hatched a plan. Many forays into the woods, many interlibrary loans later, books on Inuit culture, Alaskan history, and horticulture, and who knows what. After many nights awake, alternately excited, anxious, and guilty, after finally making a decision, he left his small Minnesota town, left his now college-age son, left his wife, I won't speculate on the last sad scenes with his wife, the tears shed, the subsequent strife-filled days before he finally departed. He went to Alaska and began his own new life, became a new Ronald, became the Ronald my mother now loves. 
Then one day, years later, firmly established in his second identity, a shaman for hire, no longer a shop teacher, he wandered into a gift shop in Skagway, and there was my mother, mulling over which funny moose postcard to send to her abandoned son. A glance, a comment, a pleasantry, a smile, a laugh, a spark, a connection. And suddenly, as Blanche Dubois says, there's God. Or rather, the hope of love and a better, fuller life. Things didn't work out for Blanche, of course, but they have so far for my mother. And now, well, Ronald and Evelyn are a couple, as they say. Late in life, they've found one another. I see them wearing matching sweaters as they head out for a brunch of salad and salmon, then off on a hike in the woods, then a nap, then an intimate dinner, then lights down low, glasses of Pinot Noir, as they listen to Your Sweetness Is My Weakness on Ronald's Vintage Hi-Fi. Who can begrudge them their happiness? Maybe Ronald's abandoned wife, unless she too has found a new partner. Or Ronald's son, who knows what became of him. Or me. Sonne. 
Butterflies on a string light up at night, powered by the sun. What magic has nature become, as the simplest manifestations of life forms have returned to where it always has just begun, seeking perpetually to see and know and show how to survive living alive. You know I can be found Sitting home all alone If you can't come around At least please telephone Don't be cruel To who hard is true Baby, if I made you mad For something I might have said Please don't forget my past The future looks bright ahead Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm digging up mm, Don't stop thinking of me Don't make me feel this way Come on over here and love me You know what I want you to say Don't be cruel To who heart is true Why should we be apart I really love you baby Cross my heart Let's walk up to the preacher And let's say I do Then you'll know you'll have me And I know that I'll have you Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Oh baby, it's just you I'm thinking of Don't be cruel To who heart is true Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm thinking of And there you have it Episode 423 Of 
troubadours and rock on tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Margalit Fox, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Spencer Tweety, Patti Smith, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, Lescott, Elvis Presley, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Welcome to summer, unofficially. Take care.